Welcome everybody to Roger's List. This is the podcast where I am watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies with a wonderful rotating cast of co-hosts. Uh, my name is Steve Guntley, and let me tell you, I've met a lot of hard-boiled eggs in my life, but our guest today is 20 Minutes. <laughs> you know him as the co-host of Ultra 64 and of uh, Just Friends. Please welcome Woody Siskowski. Hey, Woody. Hey, Steve. This it, is a this is a movie podcast? This is a movie podcast oh, now. Oh, crap. I, I thought it was a football podcast. Oh. I thought we were competing against Roger Goodell's Final Fantasy, oh. or, uh, <laughs> fantasy football picks. That's also, the my next nerd podcast. Yeah. That's the next podcast. When Roger I, uh, Goodell's Final Fantasy. I, I, have to, I have to learn from football from the ground up to make that work yeah uh, you, you you'll learn football and i'll learn about anime that'll yeah, be the trade there we go yeah <laughs> see i'm okay with that uh it feels weird to introduce you because i podcast with you like three times a week <laughs> but welcome glad to have you well, first appearance you. on roger's list yeah, so thank I'm, you for being here i'm happy to be here and i want to clarify one thing for the listeners steve was not in a mad dash to get a guest and like desperately reached out to me I actually requested to be on this movie because I think go. this is a great movie. Absolutely. Uh, to, quote, to quote Roger's term, it is a great movie. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that he could. TM, TM, TM. Yeah, he's yeah. the one who invented that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The movie we are talking about today, of course, is Ace in the Hole. This was released June 14th, one. <laughs> it was directed by Billy Wilder. This is an American production starring Kirk Douglas, Jan Sterling, Bob Arthur, and Porter Hall. Kirk, Dung uh, Kirk Douglas and a bunch of people you've never heard of? Yeah, mostly. Yeah, okay. Which, sadly, I wish I'd heard more about Jan Sterling in particular. I think she's uh, really great and kind of uh, icy in this movie. Yeah, but, she's, a, she's a neat character. But uh, I will ask you, uh, why did you want to be on this episode in particular? Uh, well, I'd seen this movie a couple years ago. I think I had actually read the Roger Ebert review where hmm. he pointed it out as a great movie. And I've al I always have a soft spot slash interest in movies that point out the hypocrisies of the media. Yeah. Um, I think that's sort of the essential issue of America and our time. Yeah. Um, and so Network is another one of my favorites. Yeah. And, oh, Network's great. Yeah. Uh, and you, I'll, I'll make some comparisons as we start talking about it more. But um, this, so this one I had seen before and um, was excited to revisit it because I remember really liking it and I really liked it again. That's fantastic. This, this is actually a first-time movie for me, uh, and it feels like a, kind of a huge gap in my uh, filmography because uh, Billy Wilder, the director, is one of my very favorite filmmakers. He made my very favorite film, and uh, I think he's a genius, and this is kind of by all accounts one of his lost classics, yeah. you know, um, and we'll go into the interesting and troubled production history of this movie in a it's second amazing how many good movies billy wilder makes like i have it's insane. I, 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 made i guess he's not still doing it but i haven't no. seen that many by him um and but just to look at the pedigree and be like wow i should really well because i just watched double indemnity uh fairly recently it's oh, amazing they're, yeah. they're so watchable they're so watchable know, that's the thing to like today like yeah, yeah you, you yeah I mean, you're, i'm not saying these movies are ageless like they're very much capsules of their time but they're so swift and so sharp and so, mm -hmm. in this case, so mean, <laughs> like, that it's really compelling. Uh, before we get into the movie, I want to talk a little bit about Billy Wilder, because this is the first of several times that we've encountered, uh, we'll encounter Wild Wilder on this show. Oh, can I, before we get into that, can yeah. I talk about um, Roger Ebert real quick? Oh, yeah, yeah, just, please. I'm, I'm, Roger Ebert is just a cool guy, and I've been a big fan of his, and my... Um, story was he, you know, near the end of his life, he was mostly just focusing on blogging and yeah. reviewing things online. And so he posted a blog about just sort of general comedy and his thoughts about it. And because I was sort of a self-obsessed teen, I posted a video of myself doing stand-up comedy at a, um, 
at a like a college competition. Hmm. And he then quoted a joke back to me from the YouTube video that was about four minutes into the video. Wow. So he apparently had watched the whole thing and really liked my joke about uh Pez coming out of Batman's neck. So <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So I was that, that was my brush with Roger Ebert celebrity. Oh my god. Yeah. I'm very jealous of that. I didn't know that story. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh, you you you've touched greatness, and I'm really uh, I'm jealous in this way. Uh, so a little bit more about Billy Wilder. He was Speaking born of greatness. Yeah, absolutely. He was born in 1906 in Austria Hungary. Uh, his hometown would today be considered part of Poland. If you don't know where Austria Hungary is, hmm. uh, his first name his name is actually Samuel Wilder. Billy is his nickname. Uh, I like. I don't know that how they, that happened. They naturalized yeah. it at Ellis Island. They're like Samuel. That's a little ethnic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we gotta we gotta Americanize this up a yeah. little bit. Uh, so he set out to be a screenwriter at a young age. He moved to Berlin in the 1920s to pursue his uh, writing career. But uh, as with many of the people we've discussed on the show so far, weirdly, this has come up a lot. Uh, he had to flee the Nazis uh, mm. because you know the, the Nazis were rising to power around the same time he was trying to make his career. He wanted none of that. So he fled to Paris. And was then he from Jewish there, or just didn't want to be uh, in the scene? I don't know if he was Jewish or not, but I, I think he just mostly didn't want to be associated with, sure. with this, which uh, you can't blame that. Yeah, so uh, he fled to Paris, uh, where he would write and direct his first short film, which was called People on Sunday, and he worked on that with a, another Austro-Hungary uh, filmmaker who would go on to be an Oscar winner named Fred Zinnemann, who made uh, uh, Oklahoma and From Here to Eternity, a bunch of great movies. Okay. Um, so in 1933... Uh, Billy emigrated to Hollywood, and he found his first major success with the film Ninochka in 1939, which was the same year he became a uh, naturalized U.S. citizen. So Ninochka, if you haven't seen it, is a really good uh, kind of dry romantic comedy with Greta Garbo. Uh, okay. That's the one with Garbo laughs. You know, it was a big deal that she, like, <laughs> cracked a smile in that movie because she was known for being, like, this icy kind of uh, femme fatale type. And uh, that became a big hit, and it scored Wilder and his regular collaborator, Charles Brackett, their first Oscar nomination, first of many. Mm -hmm. uh, and Wilder started scoring more and more work. His first American feature as a director was a comedy called The Major and the Minor with Ginger Rogers. But his next film was what really uh, blew him up, and that was 1944's Double Indemnity, which right. we will discuss on a later episode. And, uh, and that kind of announced Wilder as like this major talent to be reckoned with. And after that, he, he had like an insane run of movies, like just an insane run. He had The Lost Weekend, which won Best Picture, uh, Sunset Boulevard, Stalag 17, Some Like It Hot, Love in the Afternoon, The Seven Year Itch, Witness for the Prosecution, The Fortune Cookie. And in 1960, he wrote and directed my very favorite movie and another Best Picture winner, The Apartment. Uh, so that's, again, we will be talking about that <laughs> in a later episode. So, uh, yeah, his last film was 1981's Buddy Buddy with uh, Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, which apparently Wilder hated making. Wow, that is a that is a long career. That's so he was essentially directing movies for almost 50 years? Yeah, yeah, he, he worked for a very long time, and he lived for a long time after this. Like, in, uh, he died in 2002 at the age of 95. Okay. Uh, his, uh, his gravestone reads, I'm a writer, but then nobody's perfect. <laughs> so, you know, a callback to some like it hot. But, yeah, uh, Wilder... He, he put a lot, a lot, a lot of emphasis on the written word. Yeah. His, his philosophy when making movies is that the script is king, and he, he, gives, he gives a lot of room to actors and a lot of room to writers. Um, he's not the most visually dynamic filmmaker, but he is a very solid, like, workman-like director. I mean, he's definitely, yeah, I mean, I think that that really comes through in this movie. It's like, it is clear, 
everything is sort of in service of he has this story that he mm-hmm. wants to tell. And this movie is, I would say, I uh, I would say kind of neutral tonally. Like it, it's not like yeah. it's not necessarily like it's doesn't fit nicely into a genre. Because there's not like there are some light lines and some dramatic lines, but there's not moments of like goofy scored comedy or like I mean it's like closest to a film noir honestly, but yeah. it's but it's also like kind of deviating from film noir style. It's like, brightly lit. Yeah, like, exactly. All the it doesn't time. have like the plumes of smoke going up in the corner. It's not stylized. I guess yeah. is how I would say it. It's just very clear that like okay, I have this story I want to tell, and everything's going to be in service of that. And not even that it's not stylized. It's just not even flat. It's just not flashy. Uh, yeah, because he he didn't you know he didn't feel the need to do that. His movies are also kind of generally apolitical um he doesn't really want to take much of a side on anything and he kind of just wants to let the story be the story mm-hmm. so you don't see a lot of uh, uh topical commentary in his movies but no uh, i mean this movie is essentially all topical i mean i would say that like the themes of this are just super resonant like forever like, oh yeah there's this is just so such an important discussion that can never be overstated. And that's what makes this movie kind of stand out in his filmography. And it also might be part of the reason why it didn't really stick around for a long mm-hmm. time. So, yeah, I guess we'll talk a little bit about the the history of this movie. So, yeah, like we said, Wilder was on this crazy, crazy hot streak after the back to back hits of The Lost Weekend and Sunset Boulevard. He kind of had a blank check to do whatever he wanted and uh, so he got pretty much unprecedented creative control on this movie. Uh, so the script of this film was inspired by two real-life incidents. They reference one of them in the movie. Okay. Uh, and that's the Floyd Collins case. Remember they mentioned that? Yes. So Floyd Collins was a cave explorer in Kentucky in 1925. Uh, he was trapped in a cave-in. Uh, a reporter from the Louisville Cour- Courier-Journal named Skeets Miller, and I <laughs> love that name. That's a great old-timey reporter yeah. name. Send Skeets out there. <laughs> And plus, he was like a very diminutive guy. You gotta so that's be even better. You gotta be. You gotta be. Hey, Skeets will get the case. Hey, hey, yeah. hey, boss, it's me, Skeets. I gotta get in the corner there. I gotta <laughs> crawl in there and get the get the deep story. You got the juice on me for me, Skeets. That's literally what happened too. Yeah. Like he was the only one small enough to fit into the hole. <laughs> okay. So he got to crawl down and uh, converse with uh, Floyd Collins, who was trapped down below. And because of that, he got exclusive interviews, which would eventually lead to Skeets Miller winning the Pulitzer Prize. Oh, okay. So uh, and. Collins, he died two weeks after being trapped in the hole. He was just three days short of being rescued. But what we see in this movie is essentially what really happened. Like crowds would come to watch the rescue efforts and they would set up vendors. They would set up a carnival. And there were upwards of 10,000 people on some days like coming out here to watch this uh, mountain being exhumed and being like this cave being exhumed so they could rescue this guy. Okay. It was okay. the number one news story between the world wars for a while until the, the Lindbergh cases, uh, first the transatlantic flight and then the uh, kidnapping baby. kind of superseded that. But uh, this was a huge, huge deal. I, I, I did not know, like, I'm not surprised that that was a real story, but I didn't know that it mimicked the plot of the movie so cl- or the more the, the movie mimicked the actual events so right. closely. Um, I, cause I definitely felt like when I first saw this movie, I'm like, oh, they're reaching for satire here. Like they're clearly, they're, they're being silly about, um, how carried away everyone's getting, but it's yeah. like, no, that's actually happened. It wasn't that overblown. Yeah. No. The second case that, uh, this was inspired by, uh, involved a three-year-old girl named Kathy Fiscus. She fell into a well in San Marino, California in 1949. And this became 
one of the very first bona fide televised phenomenons. This is one of those, you know, these days, like uh, something like Balloon Boy happens and we all have to mm. kind of stop and watch and see what happens. This was the first kind of real case of that. Uh, and it was pretty groundbreaking for the television media uh, for a term of coverage. And that was one of the bigger events of that year. And uh, similar to the Collins case, uh, the Kathy died before they could actually rescue her. Uh, she was trapped down there for three days, and unfortunately she did pass. Um, and this would, of course, be echoed again later in my lifetime with the baby Jessica case in the 80s, uh, which had a happier ending. They did manage to rescue baby Jessica from the well. but And uh, echoed in the Bart Simpson episode where he gets a little radio. That's, that's true. Yeah, Radio Bart pays, uh, I think is like a direct homage to Ace in the Hole in a lot of ways, mm. or at least to some of the cases that inspired it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, and, then, and incidentally, this is not even the only movie inspired by uh, the little girl falling down the well. There's a 1951 movie called The Well, and a 1959 movie called 30, and they both kind of loosely deal with this case in the same way. Hmm. What a bad, bad titles. That's, those are bad titles, yeah. yeah. Speaking of bad titles, um, yeah, this movie this was kind of a bust. Um, this was a bust. This was Billy Wilder's first critical and commercial, like major flop across the board. So it was even a commercial or a critical flop. It was a critical flop. Yeah. So part of this had to do with the marketing. So like after the first week it came out and the movie wasn't really doing great, the studio decided to change the title. So they changed it from Ace in the Hole, which is like a perfect title. I I, I don't like, know. I, maybe I, I a little I don't, I don't the know nose. what I would call this movie, but I feel like Ace in the Hole, you just have no idea what it's going to be about. Like, it seems like it's going to be like a poker movie. I don't know. You have an right. Ace. He's in the Hole. I guess you have to know that like Ace is referring to it. It's an old journalism term. But, yeah. You know, okay. Yeah. It's a guy in a hole. You know? Oh, I know you have a real soft spot for journalism movies. Huh? I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I do have a background in journalism, but uh, nowhere near this level You're not or this as successful scope. as this guy no i was a very very small town journalist and i i can't say i've ever had this killer <laughs> instinct to manipulate the news in this way and there wouldn't really be much news for me to manipulate in the small town of blaine washington anyway <laughs> but you know you never know but either way yeah they changed the name of the movie to the big carnival which is just what is that it's like a, it's a horrendous it sounds like an like an educational film uh, that they would do on like one of those intros to Mystery Science Theater where like, Billy is going to the big carnival. Right. Look out for the vendor, Billy. Yeah. Whoa, and, clowns are fun. <laughs> and I mean, historically, you're setting it up to get confused with uh, The Greatest Show on Earth, mm. which is an Oscar-winning movie about the circus starring Charlton Heston, who you could swap out with Kirk Douglas pretty easily. So <clears throat> yeah, it kind of guaranteed that this movie would be confused and forgotten. Yeah, and they the studio changed the title without consulting Billy Wilder on this, so he was pretty pissed about it. Yeah, and it didn't help. Um, the The film was a big money loser, but uh, Wilder was still in, under contract with Paramount, and his next film was Stalag Seventeen with William Holden, which was a big hit. And Billy Wilder had to lose some of his profits from that movie to pay back his losses from this film. I don't. I don't get the impression that this film would have been terribly expensive to make, except for there is like a shot near the end where he's on top of the mountain and they like pan over everyone who's come to see it, and yeah. so there's like this huge sort of yeah carnival and just cars for miles and miles, and this train goes by in the distance. It's a re really striking shot in the movie. Oh, very striking, um, yeah. And that's sort of the only time that you really, wow, this is big scope. Yeah, for sure. Like, 
All the extras in this movie were locals from a nearby town in New Mexico where they were shooting, and they got paid 75 cents a day just to come out and watch the filming. That's, o- that's only three uh, three entrances to the carnival. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless they stamp your hand. Yeah. In that case, you can come back. Um, yeah, and the critical reception at this time was icy because critics were not prepared for how mean and cynical this movie is. Yeah. And a lot of people were kind of taking the stance that, like, oh, this is attacking our democratic uh, government and this is attacking our uh, free press, which are our two most cherished institutions. And man, how times have changed. Yeah. Um, they, yeah, they, they, and I, I, I don't want to, you know, get too much into current. I was actually worried going and watching this. Now I'm like, because a lot of movies that are sort of rooted in satire are just not really fun anymore. No. Because you're like, oh, these things that were going to be outrageous are like super quaint now. Like Network kind of falls into that problem sometimes. Sometimes. Like as prophet- prophetic as that movie is, um, there's a lot of times where like the satire just doesn't land anymore. No. Because we, we've just blown way past it. And I think the reason that this movie works so well is the emphasis is always on this character, this oh, yeah. Kirk Douglas character, as being such a force of nature and so driven by his own self-interest that it does feel like it doesn't as much feel like a polemic on the system so much as it does just like a study of this guy's sort of master manipulation. Yeah, you could argue that it's it's not so much an indictment of journalism itself because we do see a lot of honest journalists in this movie, mm-hmm. but it's. It's demonstrating how like one bad actor with enough force and with enough uh, drive can kind of shift the narrative. I I mean, I guess the big like criticism would be just the intrinsic tie of sort of the profits to be had versus like by scooping everyone. You know what I mean? Right. It's not a public service. It's like it's in your self-interest to keep other journalists out. Yeah. And Chuck Tatum, uh, Kirk Douglas's character, you know, we never we never get to really see him before he arrives in New Mexico, but we understand his backstory. He's a drunk. He's been kicked out of pretty much every he's newspaper. Very, he's very open about this in the, very the beginning open. of the movie. I mean, I love the opening shot of the movie because the first time we see him, and I mean, we'll just jump into the movie. I mean, we'll jump back and forth okay. or whatever, but like the first time we see him is uh, riding in a broken down car that's being dragged by a tow truck. So the very first <laughs> image of him is as a parasite. He is clinging mm. on to something else and being carried in somewhere, and he's just going to glom on to whatever uh, is nearby. Yeah. But his pitch when he walks into the office, he's just like, okay, uh, I'll tell your boss I'm here to save him $200. Yeah. That now, gets how, his no, how, interest. How, how does he want to make $200? Oh, yeah, yeah. How do you want to make $200? And he goes and says, well, I'm a $250 a day a week newsman, and you can have me for 50 Yeah. Which is, that's, that's, uh, that's balls. I like that. That's a good pitch. That's the recurring, like this guy is the definition of a confidence man. Like, I don't feel like it's strange because I don't feel like he's necessarily like conning anyone because he's really fairly honest and direct through the whole movie. It's not like he's making up what the news necessarily is. No. He's just so sort of has so much confidence and bravado and just tells people how things are going to be that he can just convince every, everyone. Yeah, he, and, he never is fudging details, but he is shifting the narrative to make sure it suits what he wants it to say. Yeah. Like he's, he's, he's manipulating the real He's changing the, the facts themselves, events. yeah. Yeah, 
So I guess uh, we'll break down the facts of this case itself. So, uh, yeah, so Chuck Tatum, he is working for this uh, Albuquerque paper. He's been there about a year. It was a really weird cut at the beginning because you see him go in and, like, this is first, like, less than five-minute scene where he convinces this guy to hire him. Yeah. And then it cuts, and it's, like, a year later. Yeah. They don't tell you that. He's like, oh, I've been here a year. I can't believe it. And you're like, wait, what? Yeah, Um, yeah. And people are still, like, they're they're treating him like, oh, okay, he's talking. And people are very, like accommodate this this was definitely like where it came through of oh this is clearly um or someone who has interest in writing like billy wilder himself because there's a scene again right at the beginning where he just kind of goes off on just a general rant about his frustration and you know being here and all of its co-workers just are kind of like sort of amiable about it they're like yeah. oh this wacky chuck tan going off on is one of his long work inappropriate <laughs> rants again yeah and, totally uh but they just don't really seem to care but it, it's clear that like wilder really gave this character room to breathe absolutely yeah yeah and they let him settle in and we know that he is no longer drinking for whatever reason he was there's a great line is of he, like is uh, he, did he stop drinking at this part i feel like he stops drinking later once he gets in the midst of the case Oh, maybe that's but, it. Maybe that's it. Because they, they keep checking on him to see if he's drinking or not. And he right. always says he's not. Well, he, yeah, the, the boss comes out and says, are you drinking again? And he reveals that it's actually a ship in a bottle. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a good reveal. And I like the line where he says, uh, he's like, uh, do you drink a lot? He's like, well, not a lot, just frequently. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's a lot of fun sort of quick repartee lines that go back. Oh, that, yeah. That would definitely could be lifted from a screwball comedy, except they're, they're a lot darker here. Oh, yeah, it's got it's got a poisonous edge to it, but it's still really good, like, fast banter. So he and he and this uh, younger fellow working at the newspaper named I think, Herbie? Herbie, Herbie, played um, by Bob Arthur. They get they get assigned to go cover the Rattlesnake Festival, um, which is just in one of these podunk towns outside of Albuquerque. Which is also 100% the type of things I would cover at my last paper. <laughs> okay. Not to denigrate that, man. I never got anything quite as cool as a Rattlesnake Which also hunt. seems like but. the inspiration for a uh, whacking day yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah yeah um so they go out and then along the way they encounter this uh even even more podunkier um town which is esposito or es- es- something square es- i forget now okay I'm, anyway um escudero. it's basically yes yeah, it's basically just a mountain a mining mountain and a um, trading like, post. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she, they go into the trading post. There's just a woman in the back room praying. Yeah. And then they say, oh, what's going on? And they see a cop car going up to the mountain. And, uh, well, maybe it has something to do with that cop car. So, so they follow it uh, up yeah. and they Charlie learn. Charlie Tatum senses blood here. Yeah. They, they followed up and they learn that uh, the proprietor of the trading post has been exploring the case, which is kind of an old cliff dwelling. He's been exploring it, looking for Indian pots, and he's been doing this for a while. But this time there's been a cave in and he has trapped a good way into this uh, cave and his pin, his legs are pinned. He's he's fine. Other than that, doesn't appear to be any broken bones. But he is trapped. And then yeah, Charlie Tatum just sort of comes up to the policeman. They're discussing how they're going to get this guy out. And he just has that. Con- he's like, I'm going in there. I'm getting him out. He just takes the flashlight from the policeman. Oh man! And he just like give me that stuff. Takes the blanket and goes down. I love the line where it's just like it, it's the deputy's like protesting. He just snatches the flashlight away from him and just says, "Shut up!" Yeah, like, it's, like a, it's like a gut punch. Like, can you? Imagine if someone came up to you and talked to you like that. Like, that's insane. Well, I mean, yeah, his whole, I mean, again, I'm not going to get it, but he's a very, like, he's a very Trumpian figure in the sense that he just sort of bulldozes everyone around him. Yeah. And just no, he so doesn't play by the social contract 
And he's just so open about that. Right. That nobody really knows how to respond. And this and, is this is a good this is a really good performance from Kirk Douglas because I think this is kind of playing into a little bit of who Kirk Douglas was. Okay. You know, he was the uh, he was born the son of Russian Jewish immigrants. He grew up in a very poor, hard scrabble neighborhood in New York. And he will be the first he would be the first one to tell you that he was a bit of an asshole. Hmm. He used to push people around and like bark orders at them. And he especially when he was younger in his career, like this at this point in his career, it's 1951. He just had his big breakout role in 1949 with a movie called The Champion. And he got an Oscar nomination for that. And so he's kind of just getting to the point where he's about to be this big, big movie star. And he, I mean, he's got like a real movie star presence here. Yeah. Like he really owns the screen whenever he's on it. Yeah. And he's really well suited for this role. Um, and so he, when he finds Leo Minoso, the uh, the man trapped inside the mine. Or yeah, inside, you keep wanting the, to say well, don't you? I do want to yeah. say well, and mine isn't right either. It's oh, yeah. Cave. It's just he's in the mountain, I guess. Yeah, he's just trapped it's in the mountain. It's kind of a mine. It's just, a, I guess a mine is under the ground, huh? Oh, yeah, so, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he promises to go get him he's help. A, he's in a cave. He's trapped in a cave. It's like he's it's just like the descent. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and these troglodytes come down and start trying to eat him. And pretty much immediately, <laughs> he recognizes. Okay, this is a story because he remembers the Floyd Collins story. Mm-hmm. He references it to Herbie, who is too young to remember. And but Leo's kind of like a lovable schlub. He is. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. uh, he's he's kind of just a big big friendly oaf who uh, he served in the military. They talk about it a couple of times, like he's like, he's as tough as can be. And he keeps, he wants to get back to his wife who and, he loves dearly. Yes. And that, that should bring us to Lorraine. Lorraine is played by Jan Sterling, who is not an actress I've seen in anything else before. I, I, it doesn't look like she had a very long career, but she's very, very good as kind of the blonde bombshell <laughs> sociopath, honestly. Yeah. She's, I mean, uh, it takes a while to sort of realize how, you know, cause the Kirk Douglas character does seem so antisocial and so dark. But you sort of realize that it, um, Lorraine kind of matches him in yeah. a lot of this energy because oh, yeah. you realize she she first talks she she first off is not very concerned about her husband being stuck in this mountain. She's like, no, we'll get him out, whatever. And then about you know ten minutes after they meet, she's taking money from the cash register of the trading post, and she's gonna she's gonna leave. She's gonna bail. <laughs> she's not gonna wait around to see if he gets out of this we- uh, cave or not yeah. because he doesn't. She doesn't care. <laughs> She is there, like, when we first meet her, she's expressing that she's bored, like, she's trapped in this, you know, she's kind of a hot-to-trot blonde, and she's stuck in this, like, nowhere place in the middle of New Mexico. Which is a recurring theme, too, which is definitely matches the Charlie Tatum character, because he's, like, his whole goal is, I gotta get back to New York, I'm stuck in this sort of, you know, tiny town where nothing's going on, and she's got a very similar aesthetic of, like, it's clear that she has sort of lived a difficult life and leo got her out of it yeah but she is not very interested in leo and the life that he's let like she said she's like she's like i've paid him back for everything he did to me so like i can i can go yeah you know just leave him in this cave but this doesn't work for chuck's story because he needs to have like the pearl clutching widow like waiting you know for leo to come out in one way or the other he needs her as part of his narrative to make him more relatable <laughs> yeah so he, he got- has a line earlier where he says like yeah. you hear about a hundred million men dying in china but uh, and you don't really care it doesn't stick with you oh, you yeah. hear about one man trapped in a cave that's a human, human interest, interest story you know that's where you care and uh and it's true and horrible but 
yeah, it's also, it's still true today. Yeah, and like, so he he basically becomes in charge of the rescue effort. He just appoints himself like, yeah. I'm going to call the sheriff. I'm going to call the engineers. It's unclear why the policeman doesn't do any of this stuff. But. Yeah, he's got this one deputy who's just kind of like this this wet turd. He doesn't really have any kind of anything. And the sheriff is openly corrupt. Yeah. And so Chuck seizes that opportunity and he goes and talks to the sheriff and they strike a deal where... The sheriff is going to keep other reporters away from the case. They're going to—he's going to help him try and manipulate this to try and draw it out. And they bring in an engineer who wants to just kind of go in directly, shore up the walls, mm-hmm. uh, and dynamite where they can. They and said just we drag we we, him we out. can get Leo out in I think twelve to sixteen hours by right. doing this shore up method. And but then the. Then uh, Charles and the sheriff look at each other and they know that they got to milk this thing. Yeah. So he says, well, we don't, what if you do it this other way? What if in, that's yeah, not going to be safe? We his can't new do it method, way. instead of going in directly, is going to be to drill down into the top of the mountain and like just kind of burrow until they reach. And it's like something like 55, 60 <laughs> yeah, and, feet and, down. And, you know, Charles Ten doesn't know anything about the way, you know, engineering works. He's just like, nor what's does he a, care? Nor no. does he care. It's just like, what's a method that'll take longer? And so they pressure the engineer into doing it this way. Yeah. And he, he doesn't want to go along with it, but he's got no choice because the sheriff is the person in charge. And the sheriff knows that Charles Tatum will get him, help get him reelected. Yeah, and even with the engineer, like, they toss him the carrot. Like, he knows it's wrong, but they also say, you're going to get so much work after this. You're going to be the engineer who saved Leo Minosa. Like, you're, you're this big deal. And this is this is just generally, like, I think where the movie is clicking at its all, firing at all cylinders. Yeah. Um, because I, the thing I like about this movie so much, and I think a general uh, theme of movies that I like is there's no sort of wasted space in the script. No, there's no like loose ends and there's no moments where a character kind of just takes this leap. Like Charles Tatum through this whole movie is like super smart and like he never, I don't, he, it's clear always what his interests are, but he, you, you're like, okay, if I was this kind of shitty immoral guy, Mm. like, I don't think I could do a better job than he did. No, like, no. Um, and it, it's very clear why all of these other people listen to him and follow him. And he sort of puts them all in sort of unwinnable situations. And you're like, oh, I see why they all made these decisions as well. Yeah. So it just all fits together really, really nicely. And the movie really pointedly refuses to let you sympathize with Chuck because mm-hmm. even if there are moments where you're like, oh, he's like a roguish rascal. It's fun to watch him do this. When his interactions with Lorraine show his true character like he is openly violently abusive well with that, that was another scene and, that i i really liked yeah. like she comes in and sort of just kind of the first time they interact you can kind of see him ogling her a little sure. bit like in the car but then later once he realizes what the story is she kind of comes on to him a little bit in the back room and he just slaps her. He like slap, you, slaps her, and it ends any kind of romantic tension in that scene. But not cold. Yeah, in the scene, but then she kind of comes back to she him She comes later. back, But yeah. that's something that I really liked because it was so clear of, okay, I see what drives this character. Like, he's not he's not like just an... E, he, is, he acts shittily, yeah. but he's not like an evil dude. Like, I feel like if... Oh, okay, wait. I feel like if he was kind of the quintessential just villain to the movie he would like kiss her and be like okay i'm into this person yeah even though her husband is sort of trapped there but he's not interested in that the only thing he's interested in is what's my story how am i gonna milk this how am i gonna and every he just uses people to sort of fit that narrative oh 100 he, yeah. he doesn't even if he's interested in her romance like sexually he doesn't act on that and like as he's going through 
you know, once he realizes the story, Herbie comes up and he's like, hey, maybe we should get you a drink. He's like, no drink until the end of this story. Yeah. Like he just that's what gives him life is being sort of this master manipulator. Yeah, he's got this ambition and he's got this channel now. And it, but it, it's I would just, still it's so are, consistent to that. Yeah. And and Lorraine at this point, like I think he also sees her for who she is. He knows yeah. that she is someone who uh does not have a, a moral center and can be easily manipulated. And so he doesn't respect her. And so that's why his tem- his timber kind of changes towards her when she tries to make these advances. And even when we do get kind of a payoff of of these romantic tensions. We don't get to see a kiss. We see a bald fist gripping the back of her oh, hair. Yeah, that was a weird. There was a couple of scenes in this that I think had something to do with the censors. Yes. Um, and I because that scene was weird. Like I didn't quite know what was happening there. It's like the scene cuts with him sort of holding on to her hair and it's filmed from the back of her head. I think in another movie, this would be the the scene where like you, you pan the camera over to the fluttering curtains to, to imply that they're having sex or something. But because this movie is so vicious, the scene that we see, we never see them kiss. He we just see him grabbing her hair in this really forceful way. And he says, why don't you go wash the platinum out of your hair? Okay. You know, I, that, that was such a vague implication that I didn't even get that tone. Yeah. Um, and then there's a scene later that we'll get to in a second that actually really confused me. Right. You know, I love, uh, going back to the sheriff. There's a scene when we first meet the sheriff, he's literally having lunch with a rattlesnake. He's got a rattlesnake in a cake box that he's sitting at a diner with. And he's just feeding weird stuff to this rattlesnake to see what it will eat. It eats chewing gum, turns out, with the wrappers on. on. That's how I eat chewing gum. Oh, exactly. And I think immediately we're seeing like, all right, this is a man who does not care about what company he keeps. You know, he's he's definitely going to be willing to throw in with Chuck. Um, So, yeah, but... I mean, we got so many great lines. I love the line uh, that Lorraine has where she says, I don't go to church, kneeling bags my nylons. <laughs> that is such a good fucking line. That's such a good character line for her. But so around this point, Lukey Lou's kind of start showing up. Right. And the first one we get, and this is the funniest name in the whole movie, yeah. is uh, Mr. Federber. Uh, yeah, I like this guy a lot. Federber is the best... Um, bumpkin name i can possibly think <laughs> of it just sounded like for derber <laughs> like, yeah and it's him and his wife and his two kids who are just running around in indian headdresses the whole time which of course yeah and like the oh, because, uh, well that's the narrative that chuck puts here is like this guy was struck down by an indian curse of the mountain that's the other thing yeah, yeah he because he knows like what are the two biggest stories of my lifetime one is king tut and one is floyd collins mm. and so he's mixing those yeah. two it's the curse of the mountain plus this rescue of this cave-in. So he's he's really struck gold with this. And there are a lot of people now, like that kind of complicates the rescue efforts too, because there are a lot of people, especially local natives, who won't go in the cave mm. to try and rescue him. Because they think there's a curse. So him perpetuating this curse idea is making it actually even harder to rescue Leo. And again, it's not even a lie. He's not reporting, he's not making anything up whole cloth. He's reporting what Leo believes, Um, but he's, he's reporting it in this stylized way in this, um, um, not stylized, uh, over the top kind of way. Ultimate flowery language. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so by, by setting up this drill effort instead of, you know, shoring up the walls, they basically make it take 
six days to a week instead of the 12 hours that it was originally going to do. Yeah. And so over that time, there's just more and more people showing up to this big carnival. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and it literally becomes a carnival. Like, I, I, I love the uh, the song by Evingston, or Livingston and Evans, mm. the uh, We're Coming to Save coming, You, Leo. We're coming, Leo. Yeah, like it's it's like a really catchy little tune. And I'll it, play it at the end of the episode. I like but. the way um, it is playing constantly because it really does mimic that sort of insane carnival music that's yeah. just playing the whole time and sort of slowly driving you insane. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, like this mu- music is not like a, I, I mean, maybe this is true of just movies from the 50s in general. Like I don't think the soundtrack is really anything here. Not but generally, like yeah. that song, once you hear it for the first time, they play it a little longer. And then as it keeps coming up and up, they play it a lot more and it just kind of drills itself into your brain. Yeah, it becomes kind of part of the motif. You hear it, like even the orchestral sounds uh, later, like the, the non-diegetic music, it starts sounding like that, mm-hmm. like in, in the strings, which is a really cool touch. So at this point, it's nearly two. How long is it? It's about a week into it's the rescue efforts. It's a little less efforts. than a week, maybe like five, six days. And Chuck, Chuck's the only one who's allowed to go down. Yeah, like he's the sheriff been, is keeping all of the other newsmen from actually going down and talking to Leo. Yeah, he's worked it out. There's a press tent where a bunch of different reporters are there, and Tatum's the only one allowed in, and he comes in and like just rubs it in their faces all the time. Because right, he's got such a grudge from having gotten kicked out of all of these other... Um, all of these other newspaper rackets. So they all kind of recognize him yeah, and are like, Hey, how's it going with this thing that you blew? But he's just so openly like, I got the story. I'm going to leave all you guys. Screw you guys. Yeah. <laughs> and he's also very blatant about the fact that he wants to parlay this into a very high paying job at the New York paper that he was fired from yeah, because so like, he still he still kind of idolizes New York. Yeah. You know, he talks about all the times like you don't have garlic pickles here, you know, like so like four days in he after he sort of got this story on lockdown, he quits his job at the Albuquerque paper. Yeah. So that he'll be sort of up for grabs. And then he's got all these other newspapers calling him um, to try and get a hold of the story. Yeah. And the closest thing this movie has to a moral center is Mr. Boot, who yeah. is the uh, the editor of the Albuquerque paper. The first time we see him, well, right outside his office, this is a big needle point that says tell the yeah. truth which is going to come back later uh but the first time we meet him it's commented that he's a man who wears both belt and suspenders yeah, that's funny he's part. impeccably meticulous about telling the truth about being honest and we also get the sense that that's why he is in this small time position you it's, know like there's a, there's a funny interaction right at the beginning where uh Charles Tatum says one of the reasons he got fired is he had an affair with the editor's wife. Mm. And Mr. Boot says, well, Mrs. Boot is a grandmother of three, and I'm sure she would be very flattered. (laughs) (laughs) So he's he's got a sense of humor about him. I like Mr. Boot a lot. He's great. Yeah, Porter Hall plays Mr. Boot. He's really good. He comes back later in the movie uh, to try and talk some sense into Tatum and try and just see, like... Yeah, like you're you're heading out on this path you can't really control anymore and you need to pull back and yeah. of course tatum just dismisses it's him it's so unclear to me why tatum would want his job back at the newspaper because like he's on or at in the new york paper because yeah. he's on the phone with this new york editor who fired him and it and clearly, clearly still have, hates him yeah they have this yeah like i'm gonna i'm gonna force my boss who hated me into giving me my old job back that'll be like a real productive work environment well, Real it's peaceful it's, for everyone. Yeah, it's pride and it's it's his bullish nature too. It's like he he feels like he was unjustly fired from this paper, even though he lists out all the reasons that he was fired, which would be just for anybody, I yeah. would think. You know, yo, if I slept with my boss's wife, I'd probably be fired. Yeah. Uh and I couldn't be too mad about that. But <laughs> at the same time, he doesn't see it that way. He sees it as he's this great genius and his 
his ascension, his path, his career that he had plotted out for himself has been disrupted by this man. So now he's got this huge story and he's going to cram it down this guy's <laughs> throat. He's going to make him eat it and uh, make him kind of swallow his pride and pay out the, out yeah. the wazoo to he try and he, retain he him. Thousand dollars a day for the story and then give him his old job back. Yeah. And so finally we're getting to the point. I felt like as this movie went on, it kind of lost a little bit of steam um, because it gets to the point where he's realizing that Leo down in the mountain is dying. Yes. Um, yeah, they have a doctor come down and take a look, and it's, it's uh, a, he's not doing well. It's really sad imagery and just an idea of that drill coming down on Leo because it's something I hadn't thought of, but, like, a drill is going to make a lot of noise, and it's basically going to shake the whole mountain. Yeah. So Leo's been down there, you know, six days with just this heavy drill literally, like, right above his head, yeah. just shaking the whole mountain day and night, and it just sounds hellish. And it's and probably so Leo's just kind of given up on living. It's probably muted out the song, you know, the song that's mm -hmm. being played from the carnival, like, that might... That also it, might drive him insane in its own way. Right, right, to a degree. But at the same time, you have all these opportunistic people out there. They're trying to just cash in on him being there. But any any hope of comfort he might have gotten from those songs or from those supporters is yeah. slowly being lost by this constant drilling. I would say this is sort of the, the, these are the scenes that, not that this movie wants you to sympathize with Charles, but these are the ones where he envelops, the, gives you the grants the most sympathy to him. Because he is doing an excellent job at, like, coming down and comforting Leo. Like, sure. it is his fault that Leo's in this situation for so long. Yeah. And that um, he's... But, like, it's clear, like, his skill in manipulating and, you know, inspiring confidence in people is really welcome here. Because he talks yeah. about all the friends that he has outside and how he's friends with Leo and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But then his conscience sort of starts catching up with him and he realizes, oh, shit, Leo's gonna die, which... He's, you know, he says is very bad for the story, which is true in its own way. But I do get the sense that he does feel bad about it. Right. Like, and you do. Yeah, I, I think a little bit because he he uh, he definitely doesn't dislike Leo or no. he doesn't seem to be treating him with contempt in any way. No, aside from using him, he's but, using him, but he doesn't seem to feel like, oh, uh, this this stupid hick got stuck in a hole like you, you don't really get any of that. Right. But. I'm not sure I entirely buy his come to Jesus moment, uh, Chuck's that is, yeah. when, when he's starting to come around on it, um, because I'm not sure entirely if I believe that he's upset that Leo's going to die or that it's going to take his narrative away from him. I think what he's aiming for here is the big the big uh, loss that they have with the Floyd Collins story is that uh, Collins died before they could get him out of the mountain. And so he wants this to be the way to distinguish him itself from that story mm -hmm. and to save this guy and to bring him out and have him reunited with his wife. I mean, I did get the impression that he was really sort of in it for more than just his own story, because I'm sure he would have some confidence in sort of twisting the narrative, even if he did die. And mm -hmm. like because this was a scene I wanted to bring up earlier that I got confused about is there's a present that he that Leo has said, oh, there's a present for Lorraine. You need to give it to her for me. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like this fake fur feather boa. Yeah, a mink stole um, or whatever yeah. it is, yeah. Um, and so he gives it to her. She does not want to wear it because she's not interested in Leo. But then he kind of uh, strangles her with it a little yes. bit. Another sort of vis dark, vicious scene. And there's a weird scene where I think that she stabs him. Yes. But there's you, know, you never see a knife. No, oh, no, you do. You see... Uh, he he pushes her down on the bed, and there's a pair of scissors under her back. 
Oh. You can kind of see it framed in the crook of her arm, but you can see it clearly, and then she grabs the scissors and stabs him with those. Okay, that scene somehow totally confused me because I didn't see anything in her hand. I oh. was like, I thought that she had just punched him or something, but the rest of his actions were like clear that he had gotten stabbed. Oh, yeah, no. Um, he, he so gets... I was very confused by that, and I thought it might have been an issue with the sensor, but I guess I just somehow looked away at the wrong time. Yeah, no, that could have been. Yeah, no, she, she he gets stabbed by some pretty nasty-looking, very pointy scissors. So, but so, uh, sort of he keeps going like he doesn't he at this point he's like okay i need to resolve this so he goes to the gets the uh priest to bring down into the mountain to talk to leo right give his Uh, last rites with a a a wet rag on a stick that's how he gives him his last rites by reaching into the hole in the cave and again the imagery of uh chuck as a vulture you know he's he's all you ever see of him is his head poking out of a hole above leo's prone body Mm. so again we have that imagery of him like waiting for him to die in this very predatory way. But uh, it comes to the point where uh, Leo actually does pass away. And and I couldn't, I couldn't remember. I I, I probably watched this movie maybe five years ago and I couldn't remember how it ended. I Mm. kept thinking that Leo survived. Yeah. Even to the point where Leo, he goes up to the top of the mountain and announces to everyone out here Leo has died. Yeah. Um, He died about 15 minutes ago with the drill, you know, not very far away. I thought that Leo hadn't died and he still had some plan of like, I'm going to get him out through the back way myself or something like that. Right. Um, But that was not the case. And yeah, Leo, Leo died. And it's, it is, it is surprising that this movie goes that way. And it definitely feels like um, a a reason why this movie might not have been so successful. Yeah. Though I, I don't know. You can't really, there's maybe not a way to have it both ways because if he survives, you've essentially vindicated Charles right. as like, Oh, everything worked out in the end. And like he was, he saved Leo in the end, even though it was kind of his fault and he learned a lesson. And I feel like that might've been the version that the censors really, really wanted. But I also wonder if Chuck kind of coming around and having this, uh, crisis of conscience wasn't inspired by the Hayes code in some way. Like mm. this did get some manipulation. Like, uh, the Hayes Code didn't really like him uh, collaborating with a corrupt lawman. Okay. And so they had to have a moment where the lawman gets his comeuppance. He gets literally punched in the face. <laughs> um, so you you have to do like stupid little shit like yeah, that. Yeah, well, like, again, I, I do feel like the movie kind of winds, winds its wheels a little bit because I think that Charles is just general stress of this situation and having just gotten stabbed recently, he kind of loses his grip on... You grip on himself and yeah. what he's trying to accomplish becomes sort of more unhinged. And yeah, the movie just ends with him going back to the Albuquerque newspaper. Yeah. Still nursing this stab wound. Like he's never gone to the doctor. No, no, stum- it's just gotten worse and worse. He stumbles in and he says, how would you like to make a thousand dollars a day? I'm a thousand dollar a day newsman and you can have me for free. And he just mm-hmm. collapses. I think dead. Like, honestly, I think he, de- yeah, I think he, he dies. And the only thing, like, they they stage this so perfectly because Kurt Douglas collapses directly into the camera. Yeah. So he's laying on the ground with the camera looking straight down the barrel of his dead eyes. <laughs> and in the back, there's a big needle point that says, tell the truth, oh. hanging over it like a like an angel over his shoulder. Like, tell the truth, okay. the truth shall set you free. Really good uh, little bit of imagery there. You know, there are, I, I agree there are a couple of things that they could have explored a little more. It seemed like they were going in a direction where, uh, Tatum was corrupting Herbie a little bit, like yes. the impressionable photographer. And he got it kind of gets saved at the last minute by Mr. Boot. Mr. Boot comes and takes him away before Herbie can 
go full Tatum, <laughs> but he's kind of on that path. You can see he idolizes Chuck. He says like, at one point he says like, well, I, I would never believe that anything you could do would be wrong yeah. or, or something like that, you know? Yeah. And he's this like very impressionable kid. Um, and they didn't really explore that. That kind of got left off. And, but it did make me think a lot of, uh, the movie that I think is the spiritual successor to this in a lot of ways, uh, Nightcrawler from a couple oh, of years sure. ago with yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal. I can see that. Where he and uh, Riz Ahmed, like, he, he is generally corrupted that through his association with this, like, sleazy, parasitic man. Yeah, I mean, this this is about, I mean, what's sort of the thesis statement here The is, like, newsmen creating the news, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, even if there's no story going on, they're going to make one. And that's right. kind of what's going on in Nightcrawler, right? They're taking these sort of generally not, super impressive stories and creating big news stories out of them through right. their own actions. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. taking moments or accidents and or uh, paparazzi moments and blowing them up to to news-like proportions. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, really, really scathing indictment of the media uh, in general. And again, the media at the time did not take kindly to being scathed. <laughs> and so uh, I do not think the media was above reproach when this movie came out at all. And I don't think this was exposing. That's a good yeah. reminder. And I think that's that's a helpful thing for me in general when we to watch an old movie and be like, oh, people have always been shitty. Yeah, like it's yeah. not like, you know, not that things, things are not good now by any means, but uh, they have always had bad apples um, and people willing to exploit others for their own gains. And so it's just a helpful reminder that the fights, the fights never stop. And it's not, and it's not new. It's not our generation fucking things up. It's, it's been fucked up for years and it's going to continue to be fucked up. Uh, A very nihilistic note to end this movie on, but man, uh, this is a fantastic, real gut punch of a movie and definitely one of the angrier and meaner films I've seen from Billy Wilder Yeah, uh, in a really cool way. But yeah, I mean, I, what I will say is like, I, I think that this movie stays watchable the whole way through. It, it, it doesn't feel like that dark to me like it doesn't feel as dark as something like nightcrawler and no. being that you know because that has sort of and i guess this too has sort of gross sexual undertones in it as well but again this movie is sort of devoid of atmosphere i i don't know quite how to say that without oh i don't the, know if i'd agree with okay. that i think i think it's pretty atmospheric but it's not heavy-handed about its atmosphere you know it's it's uh maybe it doesn't have atmosphere so much as it has attitude it's yeah. like a very it's an aggressive movie, but it comes it comes from the dialogue and like yeah. the perform. It doesn't feel like, you know, I think it's just an aspect of sound design because I definitely respond very strongly to sound design in movies. And yeah. it's just there's no scenes here that are like visually all that dark, like aside no. from when they're climbing down in the cave. Um, and there's no scenes that are sort of ominous. Like, I, yeah, I don't know. It's just I don't think it's a. It doesn't have like a dark mood to it. Well, I think it does, and I think that's kind of the cool thing about it is that it's able to kind of capture a bit of a dark mood in bright desert sunlight, Hmm. like in a carnival atmosphere. I think the carnival itself becomes this really twisted reflection because after a while, you have to imagine these people that are setting up Ferris wheels and buying popcorn aren't really all that concerned about a man dying 50 yards away (laughs) anymore. It's also very weird that these... uh... What was the name of the Bumpkin family who got here? Derber. Yeah, they've been there like five days just sort of hanging out like around this drill. And you're yeah. like, man. I, I get bored. Just, yeah, it just like, seems very boring. Maybe 1951, it would yeah. think, you know, you had a better attention span, which I, I guarantee 
we did. Oh, yeah, but they're just out in the middle of the desert. It's not like there's water slides nearby. It's not no. Vulture Mountain and water slides. Right, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's uh, when the carnival actually arrives to town, it might be giving those people a little more of something to do. But, yeah, what else are you going to do? Like, would you ever be attracted to, like, an event like that? Like, would you ever want to go uh, see what's going on if, if somebody was trapped in a well, cave? Well, yeah, well? I guess so. I mean, think of it like... I, I I mean I have like if I've, I've been downtown and someone's like shit this building is on fire oh I'm gonna go down and like watch that building burn like but would not, you would you go out of your way like would you would you travel somewhere would you stay for days would you like well I uh, I, I don't, don't know, know. If, I mean yeah. usually burning doesn't take days but um, well yeah but I mean in in, in a I guess in a this one situation. seems I don't know I don't know what the balance is here because like in some ways it seems less cl- sort of interesting because they can't see the guy at all. Yeah. Or anything that's sort of going on since it's all right, just right. inside the mountain. But at the same time, if you could see him, it would be sort of extra morbid. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Like I mean, it just sort of sets up they basically make themselves like a little burning man festival. They do. <laughs> yeah. They do. And they're crushed man. Exactly. It's a crushed man festival. But that's the thing. They're losing focus or like they're they're failing to conceptualize the reality of what's right. actually going on inside that cave and that there's a man's life hanging in the balance here yeah and i mean like, it becomes a literal media circus it becomes yeah it's it's a very morbid thing that people are coming out for and i think that's where the darkness comes in like it's it's darkness dis- like disguised in carnival noises and sunshine yeah you know? no it's, that's uh, yeah that that's a that's a good way to put it but it's it's a super fucking cool movie uh i do have to say like this movie was considered almost completely lost. Uh, you could only way you could get this movie was by watching it on Turner classic movies where it held the title of the big carnival for years and years and years. And it wasn't until the criterion collection released, uh, their version of this movie in 2007, 2007, 2007. Like, like that's the first time it came out on DVD. That's first time, and that's when the the title got restored, and that's when people finally really started looking at this movie and, and saying, crazy. "Holy shit, this has been like slept on for years." Because that's like a Billy Wilder movie. That it's would be Billy like Wilder if movie. there was a Hitchcock movie, and people were like, "Oh, no one's released this on home video for yeah. it's seventy years." This is like a major filmmaker that people care about, and this movie was on the verge of being lost forever. So once again, thank God for the Criterion Collection for uh, for doing amazing work and and digging that out and reintroducing it to us because. It is getting this great critical reevaluation now, which is why Roger Ebert put in his list, you know, and it's why we talked about it today. Nice. And uh, I've, I was very excited to see it for the first time. Uh, I'm looking forward to watching it again at another point. I think this is a rad movie. Yeah. So definitely check it out. Uh, it's available on Amazon for rent. That's mm-hmm. the only place okay. I could find it's it. It's also available on uh, Canopy. If you use Canopy, Canopy yeah. K-A-N-O-P-Y, uh, you can get it through your local library if they Perfect. supply it. You just sign up with your library card, and it's a free service. We get like 10 plays a month. That's how I watched it. Yeah, weirdly, it's not on Criterion Channel right now, but things Maybe kind that of has something cycle to do with in and like out. the license through Canopy or something. That's like the that. thing. Things cycle in and out. Turner Classic Movies might still own the rights to it a little bit as well, mm. so it... it does that uh well thank you everybody for listening thank you woody for being here yeah i really appreciate it i was glad it. to yes. rewatch this one yeah this is a great movie it's, i was excited it feels to see weird it. to talk to you about something that's not video games i know <laughs> it does feel strange it's a it's a paradigm shift but we'll get used to it and uh we hope to have you back many times nice. uh because you're great and uh next week we are going to be talking about a movie that uh, is going to be a little difficult to find. If you're watching along for any reason, you might want to plan ahead. (laughs) It's the seven hour version. Now we are watching a movie called Moola day. That's M O O L A A D E. Is it based on the, uh, dairy queen, uh, 
caramel treats. No, but that's the first thing I thought when I first saw that treat because I knew about the movie before I knew about the treat. <laughs> oh, no. And, like, and oh, so they no. made the much less appetizing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, this is a 2004 Senegalese film by Usman Sembene. It is uh, a story of a woman protecting a couple of young girls from ritual genital mutilation in an African village. It is pretty incredible. You're going to hear me talk about that next week. So if you want to watch along, track that down. Hopefully you have a cool local uh, DVD place like we do here with Film is Truth. Nice. Um, but yeah, yeah. Moolah Day. Tune in next week for that one. Are it's going to be interesting. Sorry, are you still rating movies, Steve? Is that still happening? Um, are you listing things or is that falling to the wayside? I think that's falling to the wayside because okay. I've, I've lost track of what my list looks like. So <laughs> okay. um, we'll just we'll just go with it from here. You know, All we'll right. just, uh, If you want to check my letterboxed uh, Roger list pod uh and letterbox then you can see kind of generally what i'm thinking about these movies cool. but um yeah well thank you everybody and we will see you next time oh,